if the diabetes is well controlled, you really don't see these risk factors. You see babies born at like relatively normal weight. They're indistinguishable from a baby of a mom without gestational diabetes when it's well controlled. So I always like to end on that note yeah. because there's so much doom and gloom on the gestational diabetes scene. And it, I mean, they really want to like scare the living daylights out of you. And I think they want to like scare you into compliance. We need to, yeah, take it seriously, but also show the flip side of it. And that, you know, there's often a silver lining and it is very much manageable and controllable, particularly when they get nutrition advice that's on point. Welcome to the One Strong Mama podcast, the no BS show that's not afraid to get real about all things pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and beyond. We're talking with visionaries who are challenging the status quo and changing the world one pregnancy and one birth at a time. I'm Lindsay McCoy, mama four, exercise physiologist, doula, and childbirth educator. My passion is making pregnancy, childbirth, and recovery better. And I'm also passionate about coconut LaCroix. And I'm Lauren O'Hayan, a mom of three girls, lover of all things tropical. I have never had coconut LaCroix, and I am known for my work with the core and pelvic floor. Hey friends, today's episode, we are joined by the amazing Lily Nichols and talking about all things gestational diabetes. And she is such a breath of fresh air and she's bringing us the most up-to-date, evidence-based way of managing it. And it takes a while for things to move into, from the research, into practice. And Lily is really leading the way. So the way she's discussing how to manage this may be different than what you are getting from your general provider. So it's really worth listening to, looking at her approach. And whether you are someone who is dealing with gestational diabetes, someone who is not dealing with it, a birth worker, this is really pertinent information for all of us. So I really hope that you listen, enjoy, and then take a screenshot, throw it up on Instagram, tag us, tag Lily. This info needs to be spread far and wide. And I am looking forward to sending all my GD clients to Lily, to her books, and to this podcast. Enjoy. Lily Nichols is a registered dietitian, nutritionist, certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition. Her work is known for being research-focused, thorough, and unapologetically critical of outdated dietary guidelines. Ooh, I love that. She is the author of two best-selling books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. That's amazing, Lily. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for the invite. Happy to be here. We, we love hearing a, like a little bit about people's kind of how they got to where they got to mm -hmm. and what brought them into the field that they're doing. What were the, what was, you know, what catapulted you there? So can we start with that? Can you tell us a little bit about your, your journey? Sure. Uh, I'll start like after I'm already a dietitian, so I don't take you too far back <laughs> down the rabbit hole, but um, yeah, I actually fell into the prenatal nutrition and specifically gestational diabetes space a little bit by accident, which sometimes surprises people. Uh, I started working with the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, which is also called Sweet Success, uh, sort of at the public policy level. So we are working on the state's uh, guidelines for managing any type of diabetes during pregnancy um, with nutrition and exercise. And so I worked on those and then worked uh, clinically uh, under a perinatologist with extensive experience in gestational diabetes and other high-risk pregnancies. And it was there that I uh, really, you know, honed my skills, was able to put the guidelines that I had worked on uh, to the test in real life and see how they mm -hmm. fared. And interestingly, they didn't fare so well. <laughs> so oh, interesting. A lot of my work has actually been on, you know, questioning how our guidelines, you know, got to be what they are and where there's room for improvement. It often takes an average of 17 years for new research to make it into clinical practice and even longer for that research to make it into actual guideline changes. Um, so 
most of my work, I mean, my first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, was, you know, looking very critically at those guidelines, um, which unfortunately I had helped work on originally. Uh, and there was still so much room for improvement. I mean, for anyone who's worked at the public policy level, uh, you have to understand how much bureaucracy there is <laughs> into oh all my of gosh. these guidelines. And it feels like birth is, it's, it seems like it's even harder with birth, like getting stuff into practice. Yeah. I mean, just look at the work that evidence-based birth does, right? Um, So there's a lot of things that are in place in our guidelines for pregnancy that are simply a reflection of the general dietary guidelines. And there's a lot of pressure to sort of comply within like the macronutrient ranges of the general guidelines, um, just because, you know, they want things to be sort of, you know, congruous between different types of of guidelines for different life stages. And now there's just so much research showing that we really need to update them, um, not only for gestational diabetes, but for general pregnancy as well. So, you know, a couple of years after the release of my first book, um, I kept being asked, you know, can you write one on pregnancy nutrition, just generally not with all the blood sugar stuff. And Mm. so that uh, made me embark on that other project, which turned out to be a much bigger project than I originally anticipated. Um, My second book is a lot longer and a a lot more thoroughly uh, referenced to research studies, but there are just so many areas that, you know, we can just do better. We can serve, um, you know, mothers and their unborn babies so much better with better information. So I'm I'm just trying to fill in that gap because I I understand just logically how how much time it's going to take for the guidelines to actually update. And in the meantime, let me fill in the gaps for you. Yeah, I am going to run out and buy both books because I will say exercise is my jam, but the nutrition side of stuff, I've always kind of let someone else deal with. And so, yeah, it's fascinating. So I would love for us to start with just like, what is gestational diabetes? Why should we care? And this is kind of probably very long, but like, what are the standards and why are they maybe not what they should be? Okay. I'll try to remember all parts of the yeah. question. Let <laughs> me know if I forget any of them. So gestational diabetes is elevated blood sugar. That's either first recognized or first develops during pregnancy which can mean two different things because it could mean either there are blood sugar issues previously going on that were undiagnosed that you're just now because you're checking blood sugar in pregnancy, you catch them. Um, There are also some people who specifically just develop high blood sugar as a result of all the physiological changes that happen in pregnancy and maybe their body, um, you know, does not adapt as well as we would expect to some of those changes because under um, you know, in a, in an uncomplicated, healthy pregnancy, you actually see blood sugar levels go down, um, in pregnancy compared to outside of pregnancy, they run about 20% lower. So when they are running high, um, it's a sign that something went awry. So maybe, you know, your body's insulin resistance is a bit high. That could have been going on preconception that you didn't know about, like undiagnosed prediabetes, Um, there can be an issue with your pancreas adapting. Your pancreas is supposed to adapt and produce double or triple the quantities of insulin um, as you make it towards the end of pregnancy to make up for that natural rise in insulin resistance. So if the pancreas doesn't adapt properly, then, you know, high blood sugar will be the result. And then sometimes there can be other factors like nutrient deficiencies or, or different things that can play a role in its development as well. Got it. So like, why, so why is it important? Why do we care? Thank you for prompting me because I'm always already (laughs) forgetting the rest of the questions. So it matters because your blood sugar levels during pregnancy play a role in baby's development. So in very early pregnancy, for example, in somebody who has say undiagnosed or poorly managed type two or type one diabetes where their blood sugar is running really high, there, those um, babies are actually at a very high risk for having congenital heart defects. It's like mm-hmm. five times higher in those babies, a- along with many other different types of um, serious birth defects, because those first eight weeks are when all of the organ, all the organ systems are formed. 
when you get into more of the gestational diabetes side of things, assuming blood sugar wasn't super high early on, most of what you're looking at is issues with uh, fetal growth. So if mother's blood sugar is high, baby's blood sugar will also be high. Mm -hmm. And once baby is at the point in pregnancy where they start producing their own insulin, uh, they will start responding to that high blood sugar level with a high amount of insulin. And so they develop essentially insulin resistance um, in the womb. So the pancreas grows larger than normal. Their insulin production is larger than normal. Their accumulation of fat is larger than normal. And you can see this on third trimester ultrasounds. I saw this in practice all the time. Yeah. Um, in cases where blood sugars were not well controlled. When blood sugar is well controlled, these things don't happen. Um, yeah, yeah, you always be... see. Yeah, go you ahead. always see like those, you always see those um, like rural India, there's this 15 pound baby being born. And I'm always like, what's going on with the blood sugars? Like, were they checked in pregnancy? Yes, exactly. And India has a particularly high rate of uh, type two diabetes going on. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's certainly cases of large babies that are, that are healthy and it's not related to elevated blood sugar in mom. But when you get to sort of these extremes of like 13 and 15 pound babies. Mm. I mean, there was something going on with there had to, yeah, <laughs> I can tell yeah. you that. Maybe it's question, a little more questionable with like a nine or 10 pounder, but when right. you get to some of the bigger, really bigger babies, yeah, there was something going on with the blood sugar. Um, sometimes there can be differences in growth also like in um, their shoulders can grow disproportionately large, which is why there, there can be a high risk of shoulder dystocia in birth. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes there can be issues with, uh, lung development because the elevated blood sugar interferes with the surfactant and in, in the, um, developing baby's lungs. And then at birth, there can be issues with baby's blood sugar potentially going too low, which can be minor, but can also be serious and be life-threatening. I mean, the baby's body is adapted to receive high amounts of blood sugar and they counter it with high amounts of insulin. And once you cut that cord, that was that it's like an IV line, right? It's just a consistently high level of sugar. You cut that, but the baby's insulin is still high and they tank. And this is why there's, you know, such a higher rate of um, NICU admissions, the neonatal intensive care unit admissions for mothers, uh, babies of diabetic mothers. And it's really, I want to just reiterate that all of these things are a result of the elevated blood sugar that they're exposed to. If, if the diabetes is well controlled, you really don't see these risk factors. You see babies born at like, a, you know, relatively normal weight. Um, they're indistinguishable from a baby of a mom without gestational diabetes when it's well controlled. So I always like to end on that note yeah. because there's so much doom and gloom on the gestational diabetes scene. And I mean, they really want to like scare the living daylights out of you. And I think they want to like scare you into compliance, but scaring people and putting them into a state of anxiety is not productive in my experience. So we need to, yeah, take it seriously, but also show the flip side of it. And that, you know, there's often a silver lining and it is very much manageable and controllable, um, particularly when they get, you know, nutrition advice that's on point. And in the doom and gloom scenario, what are they trying to scare you into doing? Just hypervigilant monitoring or um, radical diet change? Like what are they in, you know? They are trying to A, get you to comply with checking your blood sugar four times a day. Okay. uh, Which I agree with because you need to know where your blood sugar is at. Um, B, to get them to change their diet or, and unfortunately the dietary advice, which we'll talk about is not, does not often result in well-managed blood sugar. So that creates its own level of frustration Mm -hmm. and then see if the dietary advice um, is not enough to manage their blood sugar. Well, then they want you to go on medication or insulin and they use, I'm not saying everybody does this, but just frequently there is, you know, this sense of, of something bad is going to happen if you don't comply, you know, your baby's going to be too big Mm -hmm. and then you're 
going to need an, an early induction. And then sometimes they even force try to force an early induction when their blood sugars are super well controlled, right? I see that. Um, oh, I'm a, yeah, I'm a doula. I see it all the time. And, yeah, it's really unfortunate. There's, in my opinion, there's no reason for um, gestational diabetes pregnancies to be automatically high risk and over medicalized. But that is, you know, that is a, a rant for another day, probably. Yeah, so, I, I, sorry, go ahead, Lauren. No, I was just going to say that in our group, one of the one of our pregnant people was saying that your approach to all of this is very doable. So I guess we were, we were curious about kind of talking us through what, what, what does that mean? What is your approach and why is it so doable? And, um, yeah, like different than what is like, you go to your doctor and they give you this to do, and then you go to Lily and she tells you this, like, how do they differ? That's what I want to know. Well, first of all, is that I think the the, the type of advice and the level of detail advice of advice that you're going to get varies tremendously based on the provider you're with. So sometimes there are providers who are very up to speed on gestational diabetes, or they employ a dietitian or nutritionist who's very up to speed and they like sit with you and come up with an individualized plan and it's great. <laughs> and then other times, you have situations where people get, you know, either no information, um, they might get like a one page handout that has like, here's your meal plan at this number of calories with this number of carbs and like, eat that and then, you know, you're done and the quality of information on such a handout is can can be questionable and then there might be a scenario where you're sent to like the hospital for a group class um and again the quality of that information varies i mean when i was teaching clinically i mean i would do group classes and it was all essentially like you know low income economically disadvantaged often you know not not necessarily having a, a good handle on the english language and we had great outcomes you know because the information they were given was higher quality so the typical advice that you will get so the standard of care for gestational diabetes is ironically a relatively high carbohydrate diet mm-hmm. which is a bit counter to common sense when you think about, okay, elevated blood sugar in pregnancy, what nutrients elevate your blood sugar the most of your fat carbohydrates and protein carbohydrates raise your blood sugar the most like full stop. This is well known. It is not rocket science. Another way of defining gestational diabetes is carbohydrate intolerance of pregnancy, which means your body is not able to tolerate large amounts of carbohydrates without experiencing high blood sugar as a result. So why in the world is the advice that we give to these women to eat, eat plenty of carbohydrates? I mean, they're often- Do you know talk- why? Well, I can go into it if you want, but oh, okay. you're talking, I'm asking a So bit they of a do have a reason. Question. I know you do. I know yes. you are. I'm just, there is an actual legitimate, because it does sound like an oxymoron. And it is. And their reason is, ends up not being that legitimate, which is the okay. whole point of me writing okay. um, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. But just to drive the point home, to think about it. So often if they're, when they're diagnosing gestational diabetes, they're giving a glucose tolerance test and looking at your results after drinking anywhere from 50 to 100 grams of sugar. So if you fail, say a 50 or 75 gram glucose tolerance test, why would we think that your body is well suited to tolerate a meal plan that provides 45 to 60 grams of carbohydrates at each meal? That doesn't make logical sense and it doesn't work in practice. And that was one of the most um, difficult things for me to like, Uh, you know, come to terms with having worked on those exact guidelines. Um, So the rationale for a higher carbohydrate intake is that there's a whole lot of fear about um, if women don't get enough carbohydrates and they might go into ketosis. And I can talk for literally 90 minutes on this topic, but that is like the whole last Mm. chapter of real food for gestational diabetes is um, devoted exactly to that topic. And um, my, my take home message is that no, you don't have to eat a mandatory minimum of 
in their guidelines, 175 grams of carbs per day. Um, yes, you can titrate back on the carbs down to a level that your body does well with. And you figure that out by testing your blood sugar after eating certain meals that have differing amounts of carbohydrates and you see where the results are. And if, you know, there are cases where some people are able to eat 45 grams of carbs at a meal, no problem. They probably have a relatively mild case of gestational diabetes. There are situations where you, you have women who can't eat more than 15 grams of carbohydrates at a meal. And that's their set point. That's their body's level of carbohydrate tolerance. And that's okay as long as you're eating a nutritionally balanced diet and not in terms of like you have to have a certain amount of carbs but like you're covering all your micronutrients you're covering your protein and fat and your diet happens to be low carb that's fine and we have excellent outcomes um even in those scenarios so people don't need to go like full-on keto or anything um but you can eat less than 175 grams and have a beautifully healthy pregnancy and maintain you know good good uh blood sugar levels within the normal range mm -hmm. So your approach is, is it counting carbs or like what, what would be like the cliff note version of your approach to managing gestational diabetes with diet? So, I mean, cliff notes version is, is eat to the meter, first of all. So there's not going to be one meal plan that works for every single person. So like in real food for gestational diabetes, I offer three versions of the same day's meal plan at three different levels of carbohydrates. So you know mm -hmm. how to, you can titrate up or down based on your blood sugar response. Um, but the, you know, I guess the cliff notes version would be eat your protein and fat foods to satiety. I teach very specifically, these are the foods that raise your blood sugar the most. These are the foods that barely or don't raise your blood sugar at all. Eat freely from the foods that don't raise your blood sugar very much and then titrate the amount of your carbohydrates to the amount that your body can handle, which you figure out by testing your blood sugar after eating a meal. Um, one way that I explain it in the book is um, I, I follow a, a rule of no naked carbs. So you don't wanna eat you know, carbohydrate foods by themselves. Like if you have a piece of bread by itself, even if you don't have diabetes, like your blood sugar is gonna spike depending on how good your, you know, carbohydrate tolerance is or not, that'll, that'll differ in how much your blood sugar spikes, but eating carbohydrates by themselves spikes your blood sugar. If you instead have that piece of bread with some peanut butter on it, or a piece of cheese, or, you know, you have it alongside, I don't know, a, you know, grilled chicken breast or something like that, your blood sugar response is going to be completely different. And you're not going to see as um, high of a spike, you not, might not see a spike at all. It's sort of like a, you know, gentle roller coaster instead of like careening up, up a mountain and then like crashing um, down later. So we're really trying to just minimize your blood sugar spikes, make sure you get enough food to stay satisfied. There's no going hungry. Um, you're just learning how to combine foods in ways that is, you know, beneficial to your blood sugar response. And what about for people who have more um, like a vegetarian diet, don't eat a lot of protein from, you know, and so they are relying more heavily on carbohydrate heavy foods, like maybe rice or beans. Yeah. It, it takes a lot of extra work when you're, you're doing a vegetarian plan. And so uh, the biggest thing would be choosing your, so pretty much, most, it depends if you're talking vegetarian or vegan, but mm -hmm. outside mm -hmm. of, if you include eggs and dairy products, much easier to do because you have um, low to no carb dairy products to choose from like cheese, cottage cheese, um, Greek yogurt. And yeah, those would probably be like the top ones. Um, of course, like your butter and cream cheese that are really fatty also would not have many carbs either, but not much protein. Um, your eggs also would be pretty much mostly protein with no carbs whatsoever. When you get into the um, fully plant-based protein sources, you do have to account that uh, they do contain carbohydrates as well. So nuts and seeds, higher protein, higher fat, still contain carbohydrates. So you have to factor that in. 
um, beans and legumes, like your lentils and black beans and whatnot. Yes, they contain protein, they still contain carbohydrates. So you have to factor that into your total carbohydrate count for the meal. So it is a little bit trickier. What I recommend is um, being much more careful with your low protein carb sources, like your potatoes and your rice and your bread, and trying to get more of your um, vegetarian protein sources from things like beans and legumes and nuts and seeds. Um, uh, tempeh, for example, can be can be a good option, but it, it does take some extra work for sure. This episode is brought to you by the One Strong Mama program, the game-changing prenatal and postnatal program that prepares the body for pregnancy, birth, and beyond. Based on the Body Ready Method, teaching birth and fitness pros how to assess and train prenatal clients. Go to onestrongmama.com to learn more. Thank you for that. Yeah. Let's see. What do I want to go into next? We had so many questions in our group. So um, I think the first thing, so I think, you know, everyone, one one of the things you do when you're pregnant is you get your gestational diabetes test. So it starts with the one hour test if you fail that you move to the three hour test. I hate the word fail by the way, for that. Um, it's like, you didn't fail a test. You couldn't study for it. So, um, one question that someone had was let's say that their numbers didn't meet the standard for the one hour test. Is there anything that they should do? Should they start limiting carbs immediately? Like what should we do going into that three hour test and like that whole walk us through that whole kind of scenario. Okay. And by the way, depending on where your listeners are, there are different ways of doing the diagnostic test. for Yeah. We should talk about that too. I have midwives at, at, you know, birth centers who are doing it without the, that orange syrupy drink. Yeah. So, but even if we're talking about the orange syrupy drink, like the glucose tolerance test, which uses the glucola drink, almost every country outside of the U S does a one-time 75 gram glucose tolerance test with, um, more stringent, uh, diagnostic criteria. And a lot of California also follows that, but like the rest of the U S it seems mostly does the two-step method with the, um, glucose challenge test, which is 50 grams of glucose and followed by, the um, 100 gram three hour test. So I just want to throw that out there in, in case some people are confused. Um, you might be in a part of the country or world that does a different method. Do you um, have a, a preference? Which one do you think is more helpful? The 75 gram test for sure. The one time um, test. The one time test. Okay. And with the standards that the California diabetes and pregnancy program uses and essentially like everybody other than the U S uses those standards. Okay. Um, it is much more, um, uh, specific and accurate in, in diagnosing it and it's performed fasting. So the trick tricky thing about the one hour test is that it's not performed fasting. It's like any time of day. And so if you go in, say for the one hour test and you just had a big lunch and say you had, you know, a, a large sandwich and uh, a bag of chips. And then you had a couple pieces of candy, like on your way into the office, like you're starting at a baseline of pretty high blood sugar levels. And then you're going to throw on 50 grams of glucose on top of that. That's, that's more than drinking a can of Coca-Cola. <laughs> I mean, a can of Coke is, I think like 39 grams, it might've changed, but it's something around there. So it's, it's a lot of sugar. A, so it, it just, you can get inaccurate results and their, their point is they want to make it as easy as possible for people to just take the test, get in and get screened. And it just strata, stratifies who's at the greatest risk. They know there's going to be a certain percentage of people who will get a false positive on that first test, but they'll just come in for the second test and we'll figure it out then. But of course, that time between the first and second test, you're like freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it does delay the diagnosis and causes a whole lot of stress and anxiety. So I, I do think not only for the accuracy reasons, but just for lessening stress and getting treatment 
sooner if in fact you do have gestational diabetes, uh, the 75 gram one-time fasted two-hour test is the best way to go. Uh, so for people who are though doing that two-step method, there's, I'd say it, it depends whether you should do anything between your one hour and three hour test. Um, it depends. So if you are a person who feels like you ate like a large meal right before you went in for your test and you're like, what? <laughs> um, my results are probably skewed. You probably don't need to do anything different um, in between. I'd say the greatest risk, and I think what people are concerned about is like, they don't wanna get a false positive when they do the three hour test. Um, the big concern there, and really the only times that I see a false positive happening on that test is in people who naturally eat a very low carbohydrate diet. And so, you know, our bodies are smart and our pancreas adapts its production of insulin to match what you generally eat. So people who eat very low carb, their pancreas is not currently adapted to producing large boluses of insulin at a time to handle big blood sugar spikes. And so doing that one hour test probably caught it yeah. off guard. So for somebody who is used to eating low carb, they might get an unexpected high result on that one hour test. So if that's you, uh, you should know that up until gosh, I don't know the exact time, but sometime in the mid nineties, I believe there was a recommendation that you actually ate a minimum amount of carbohydrates leading into a glucose tolerance test. So you didn't have the false positive issue. Um, that has since not been part of the guidelines. And I think that's because most people do eat a large amount of carbohydrates, so they don't need to encourage you to eat more leading up to it. But if you happen to be somebody who prefers to eat on the lower carb side, I would say try to eat a minimum of 150 grams of carbohydrates per day in that week, or at least three days leading up to that, um, 100 gram test. So at least, you know, your body's primed to it because your pancreas will adapt. If it's, if, you know, if you give it enough carbohydrates and it has the capacity to actually adapt, meaning you don't truly have a, a, a gestational diabetes issue, essentially, um, you should have no problem passing the three hour test. So that, that's what I would do. Just make sure you are actually eating um, a, enough carbohydrates rather than people worrying about going low carb. Now, if your usual diet is like very high in sugar, that's like not good for anybody ever. So like reduce that. <laughs> you know? Right. No matter but what, just, doesn't matter. Yeah, right. but it's just right. don't automatically switch to like super low carb leading up to the test. That could actually um, you know, have the opposite of of the intended effect. So what about that? And that's super helpful. Thank you. I think that our listeners will love that. Um, we will wrap up our talk soon. We don't want to keep you for too long with our 10,000 questions, but I know that folic acid and folate are big F words in the community. So what, can you talk to us about that? Um, we saw on your Insta an Instagram post talking about too much, um, during pregnancy, too much FA. Yes. Um, can be associated with insulin resistance. So, so uh, in, within the child. So we'd love to know more of your thoughts on that. Sure. And I actually just released a really detailed article on um, folate versus folic acid on my blog, um, which you're, you're welcome to link to oh, if you'd like okay. going into Great. like yeah. all the details on it. Cause it is oh. a huge can of worms. Um, so in short, folate is an umbrella term that refers to any kind of folate, whether it's the kind that you get naturally in food, which they call food folates, or if it's a kind that you find in a supplement, whether that's synthetic folic acid, or as you're calling FA, or whether that's a more a, a easier metabolized form, such as um, methylfolate or folinic acid, which is different than folic acid. They all fall under the umbrella of folate. So we have to get first, we have to understand that that is a fact that is just like how it is in the nutrition world. And second, when you're talking about folate, you want to be specific 
with the form that you're talking about. Um, now we have quite a bit of research questioning whether synthetic folic acid, which is a man-made version that we do not find in food, um, is actually the best approach to go for supplementation because that is the form that is found in most prenatal vitamins. That's the form that most of us are told by our healthcare practitioners to take um, during pregnancy and in preparation for pregnancy. And now we have considerable research showing us that there might be some unintended negative consequences to folic acid. And instead, maybe we should be focusing on more easily metabolizable forms of folate, such as methylfolate, um, particularly for people who have some genetic differences in the way that they are able to process folic acid. So if people have heard the acronym MTHFR. Yes, mm -hmm. uh, I have it actually. Yes, so do I. And so I feel like most people do. I wouldn't, I, it does, I mean, I just found it out from doing the 23andMe mm -hmm. and it has yep. caused me no issues, but yeah. Yeah, so 40 to 60% of us have it. And it affects our ability to metabolize synthetic folic acid. So, um, and the, depending on which type of the um, MTHFR, they call them SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphism is just like this complicated genetic term you don't need to really worry about, but there are different versions you can say of MTHFR. And some of them, um, if you have them, you have more trouble metabolizing folic acid where some of them are more mild and it's not as big of an issue. Um, but they have even identified in people who don't have any variation in their MTHFR um, that synthetic folic acid can be an issue. Um, it's not super well metabolized. And, you know, 98% of the folate that is in our bloodstream is in the form of methylfolate. So why are we not supplementing with the form that everybody's body can utilize right. regardless of genetics. Why are we supplementing with folic acid instead? Um, and I go into some of the reasons behind that in um, that article that I was talking about. And unfortunately, a lot of it has to do with money, um, but you know, no better, do better. We can um, choose to supplement with a better form. We can choose to try to prioritize our food sources of folate, which all of us can metabolize. Most of the folate found in food is in the form of methylfolate, even though there's many, many different types found in food. Um, so even those of us with MTHFR can do just fine, you know, metabolizing what we have in food. And it doesn't necessarily um, pose an issue for us specifically. Um, like I, I don't have any noticeable issues because of MTHFR, but I don't eat a lot of folic acid intentionally. Yeah. I'm not eating a lot of fortified foods intentionally and trying to get as much of my nutrition through real food. You naturally have a good balance of all the micronutrients that help us utilize the folate in our food. And so you're much less likely to run into health issues um, as a consequence. But as somebody, if you're somebody who eats um, you know, a lot of processed food and most of our refined grains are fortified with folic acid um, or you're taking a prenatal that has folic acid instead of methylfolate, yeah, you can run into issues. And one of the issues that has come up in some studies is that it may contribute to insulin resistance in the offspring. It may contribute to some brain development um, issues like ADHD or autism, although that research is still not um, completely, you know, irrefutable. So don't get too freaked out sure. about it. Um, but there, yeah, there are some issues um, being brought up in, in the research and especially in the past 20 years on this issue. Wow, That's very good. interesting. Is there, before we wrap up our talk, um, I don't know, Lindsay, if you had any other questions or I have a couple that I want to get to because some okay. people asked okay. if that's cool. The one that the one that people asked is and and one of them was actually a client. I was just at their birth recently and they had gestational diabetes controlled with their diet and their doctor keeps mentioning and they even mention it at the birth like it's mentioned all the time her risk of diabetes, just not gestational diabetes, how high her risk is now that she's had gestational diabetes and also her, you know, she's had it with every pregnancy. So that's kind of two questions in there. The first one is, does having gestational diabetes predispose you for issues? Let's just start with that issues after the birth. 
So not necessarily immediately after the birth, but in terms of like a, you know, longer, longer period of time after the birth, like within five to 10 years after delivery, the research suggests anywhere from a 30 to 70% increased risk of developing type two diabetes. So in women's, in women specifically, um, having gestational diabetes during pregnancy is the single strongest independent risk factor for later development of type two diabetes. So it is a sign that your body has like, and from what I've seen in practice where we um, screened earlier in pregnancy. um, So you could actually see before the body has been, you know, exposed to all the pregnancy hormones and the waking and the natural insulin resistance that happens as a result. Most of the people that I saw who developed gestational diabetes actually had prediabetes and didn't know about it. Okay. Um, Yeah. So if you screen with an A1C in the first trimester, which, you know, the California and diabetes, California diabetes and pregnancy program suggests that you do. And many other countries do this. You can stratify whether or not it's not a perfect test, but you can get an idea of where somebody's baseline blood sugar is before pregnancy. And so there's, quite a few people, certainly not all, who come into pregnancy already with some degree of prediabetes, which you could also call insulin resistance. Um, And that generally tends to get more challenging during pregnancy. Pregnancy is like a stress test on your body. um, And also tends to get more severe over time, just with age, usually insulin resistance goes up, meaning our body's ability to manage our blood sugar tends to get more challenging as we get older. So some of it is a matter of like, okay, you've been exposed to the stresses of numerous pregnancies, but also, which each time is putting a strain on your pancreas, but each time you're also older, (laughs) you know, it's just time Hmm. keeps rolling on. Um, And so that can certainly um, be something to think about. But I also like to, again, like flip this on the positive side in that you know, we're not statistics, there is no um, guarantee that any of this predisposition will actually hold true for you. And sometimes with gestational diabetes, it's actually like a catalyst for um, great, you know, dietary and lifestyle change, it can be actually a really positive experience where people are like, wow, I'm taking my health so much more Seriously, not to say that everyone with gestational diabetes doesn't take their health seriously. There's just a wide range of people who can get it. Um, But for some people, it can be like, wow, you know what? I didn't realize that, you know, having this size of a portion of rice um, at meals, which I typically do, you know, almost every day, spiked my blood sugar so much. And wow, when I replace that with half cauliflower rice or something else, Um, or just eat less rice, my blood sugar is in a great place. And hey, you know what, my energy level is better, and I feel better. And hey, like, I didn't gain as much weight during this pregnancy, and that feels better on my joints. And sometimes it, it, it has a bit of a snowball effect, where it's something that you can carry through for the rest of your life. So, you know, I would say, if you're not making any changes to your lifestyle long term, yeah, it can be an increased risk for type two diabetes, but it's not a guarantee whatsoever. And in fact, I see many people where I think gestational diabetes is actually what prevented them probably from developing type two diabetes later on. Yeah. So do you recommend that people that have gestational diabetes, once they're no longer pregnant, that they continue following some of your guidelines? Is that some way they can lower their chance of getting it for the next pregnancy or into their rest of their life? Yeah. I mean, for the most part, um, Certainly, though, we do want to honor that fourth trimester time where, you know, your energy and nutrient needs are substantially higher in early postpartum than they are even during pregnancy. So I don't want people to be like overly restricting themselves um, during that time. Like that is a time to rest and replenish your nutrient stores and establish breastfeeding if you so wish. And by the way, if you do, breastfeeding is actually one of the um, 
biggest uh, ways that you can reduce your risk of type two diabetes later in life. So that's a really positive thing, um, especially if you do it for a minimum of three months. I know that's not possible for everybody, but I just want to throw out a little plug for breastfeeding that that can be a helpful way to reduce um, your risk. But um, I would say, you know, get through the fourth trimester. Yes, eat nutrient dense foods, maybe don't be so um, strict on carbohydrates, like at the very least continue what you were eating during pregnancy, but you're probably going to need, I mean, all of us need more calories early postpartum. And as yeah. a result, you might also be eating, um, some more carbohydrates during that time. And that's fine. Don't worry about it. But once you have, you know, if you're breastfeeding, if you have your milk supply established, you know, you're feeling more like, okay, I'm out of that early fog of postpartum then yeah, kind of, you know, get back to it. It is helpful to, you know, check in on your blood sugar every once in a while and see if anything has changed with how many carbohydrates you can tolerate now or not. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really good idea to continue that to some degree um, okay. long-term. Certainly like the no naked carbs idea is probably the most helpful thing to have in the back of your head long-term, even if you don't have any blood sugar issues. Yeah. I think it's just yeah, such a great general. simple tip. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. My last question, cause I think a lot of there's overlap here, but I, I want to talk about the birth. I'm not sure how much you, this is in your wheelhouse, but if somebody has well-controlled diet managed gestational diabetes, is there evidence that we should treat their birth differently? So for example, I hear a lot of, I think we touched on this earlier, a lot of like 39 week induction, a lot of, a lot of different stuff being managed because of the diabetes, but if it's controlled, yep. is there any additional risk? In my opinion, it should not be treated any differently. Um, and I, I don't focus most of my work on birth, even if I'm personally very passionate about this, sure. um, but, uh, I believe evidence-based birth might have a couple of their um, signature articles on this topic. I know they have one about um, big babies. Yes, I'll link it in the show notes. It's a great article. I think they also have one on early induction. Um, I helped contribute to their article on gestational diabetes screening methods. Um, so that would definitely be a resource to go to for actual like research studies on the topic and more of like a, you know, left brain um approach to the topic, but in my experience, no, it shouldn't be treated any different. And in fact, even in people who have type one diabetes, um, that's a type of diabetes where your body doesn't produce any insulin. So it is um, usually much trickier to manage, especially yeah. in pregnancy. I still see excellent outcomes in those mothers who are able to manage their blood sugar. So really a lot of it has to do with the specific case. Um, I think too often as healthcare providers, we're kind of lumping everybody into these categories based on certain specified list of risk factors, right? So we have like, okay, your BMI is this, your yes. risk category is this, your age is this, your risk category is this, your, you know, gestational diabetic or not, your risk category is this. And there are, there's just so much nuance to it. And there's so much variation within a gestational diabetes, you know, world, I have had clients who have like very tricky to manage blood sugars that can barely handle any carbohydrates. And no matter what, they are going to need some medication and insulin. And by the way, that's fine. There, there are absolutely cases um, like that doesn't mean nutrition and exercise and all that don't matter. Um, but they need that. That's an extra tool in the toolbox that you need to use. And then there's other cases where it's, you know, a very mild case of gestational diabetes, really easily controlled with diet and lifestyle factors. And, you know, they're in a different category of risk. And then in addition, you have some people who like are completely undiagnosed, but it's going on, or maybe they're not managing at all and their blood sugar is all over the place, whether or not they're on medication or insulin or whether they're taking it or not. And they're in a different risk category. You know what I mean? So yeah. I just wish there was a little bit more understanding of like the nuances of it in the medical community and less like putting people into boxes and then forcing certain outcomes on them. Like I run an online course on for um, people with gestational diabetes and I, we just had like two births in the past week and both of them like went totally great vaginal birth, 
went to term. One of the babies was like six pounds, 15. Wow. You know, they're not necessarily like GD doesn't guarantee a big baby, you know, um, doesn't (laughs) guarantee a small baby either. Like they come in all sizes just as they do. Um, but there's just this, I think an expectation in the healthcare providers mind, depending on their level of experience that gestational diabetes automatically means like worst case scenario. Yeah. It's like stamp, stamp it on their forehead. You have GD. Oh, you are a breath of fresh air. Thank you so much. This needs to be (laughs) shared everywhere. People need to hear this. There is hope you can manage this, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it can be a blessing in disguise too, on top of that. So yeah, be empowered, you know, empower yourself with knowledge and, um, you'll probably by the end of it, if, if you're not sharing with your provider, what you're doing at the time, uh, they might ask you (laughs) because they'll be like, I don't typically have gestational diabetes cases that go like this. Um, but every gestational diabetes case should be, um, should, should not be managed the same. And there's so much room for improvement on our guidelines. Yes. Where can people find you? Where can they find you online? We will link to everything, but I like to just have people kind of share their places. Sure. Yeah. So my main website is lilynicholsrdn.com. And there you'll find, you know, a bunch of different blog articles. Like there's, there's one relevant to our topic today called nine myths about gestational diabetes. You can use the search bar and it'll pull right up. I also have um, freebies on that website. So go to the freebies tab. I give away the first chapter of real food for pregnancy for free. Um, I also have a three-part video series uh, specifically on gestational diabetes. So if you've been diagnosed and you're kind of freaking out, um, you can read that. Uh, I also offer, you know, an, an online course on gestational diabetes. So, you know, you get a whole bunch of different meal plans, um, training videos. I have a private Facebook group where I answer questions directly during office hours each week. So if you are finding you need more support beyond my free resources or beyond my books, um, that's definitely a place to go. And then as far as uh, social media, I am most active these days on Instagram and my handle's the same as my website. So it's Lily Nichols RDN. Amazing. I'm going to send all my GD people your Mm -hmm. way. This has been amazing. Great. It's been so great talking to you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure and good questions. (laughs) Thank you all for listening to the One Strong Mama podcast for birth professionals. If you haven't already, please leave us a rating and a review. We really do appreciate all of the support. If you are a birth worker with an inspiring client or if you have a birth pro in mind that we should definitely chat with, please email us at podcast at onestrongmama.com. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram at onestrongmamaprenatal for tips for all stages of pregnancy. And definitely join in on the discussion in the One Strong Mama Facebook community group. See you here next time. This episode is brought to you by the One Strong Mama program, the game-changing prenatal and postnatal program that prepares the body for pregnancy, birth, and beyond. Based on the Body Ready Method, teaching birth and fitness pros how to assess and train prenatal clients. Go to onestrongmama.com to learn more.